Hey guys, welcome to season two, episode two of the uh, Grad Life podcast. Today I've got with me Nate Spawn, who is my manager in my job, and he's had a fascinating career to date. So uh, we brought him in just to hear about that and, and hear his journey to where he is now, which is the general manager of Five Tran EMEA. Uh, Five Tran is a company that's doing really well. It's Series B, backed by uh, Andreessen Horowitz, who are one of the most famous venture capital firms in the world. So it's in a really good place, and Nate has the massive job of running it and growing it throughout EMEA. So Nate, uh, starting from the start, you're from Vancouver Island, not from actual Vancouver, but the island beside it, which is almost half the size of Ireland, or? Like a third the size of Ireland, a third the size of Switzerland, yeah, big island, lots of trees. And super outdoorsy, yeah, loads of trees, surfing, all that sort of stuff. And you went to one of a, a different type of school, not like a normal uh, study history geography type thing, a much more practical. Yeah, it was a Waldorf school, um, so it's very like you do handwork, um, you do farming, you do woodwork. Uh, instead of reading textbooks, you make your own textbooks, um, and you get a lot of lectures, and then have to you know write back. And they they animate things, so like studying the ancient Greeks in grade five, you do a big Greek Olympics. And you do a lot of plays that are themed with whatever you're studying. It's mad. What impact do you think that has on you? Do you notice a difference between you and the, you and the other people who are the output of that environment versus uh, a more standard? It's an interesting question, and a lot of people, you know, would have a, would have opinions that way, this way or that. I think it kind of really sets you up to be creative and to just make things and to feel like you can do whatever you want. Uh, to a certain extent, I, I would say that, in my opinion, some aspects of it are antiquated. So, while it teaches you to make everything you could want a hundred years ago, it didn't teach me how to write code or build whatever I want today. Right. Okay. Um, so maybe there's an evolution that that's needed there. Yeah, but you do see it in you like a very practical approach to things. And I remember I observed that and I said it to you just after I joined and you said, yeah, well, when I was 14, I built a hut or what, what was that project you worked It was 19, but I built kind of like a yurt on steroids. Um, it had in-floor heating and, uh, yeah, running water um, and 24 feet in diameter, 42 square feet. That's uh, mad. Yeah. But that is a direct output of that sort of education and like hands-on and, and learning how to build things, etc. I think so. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool. So going from that, when you went into college, and I know you did social entrepreneurship for social enterprise? Yeah, I did one year at the University of Victoria, and then I was listening to the radio, and there was like these, yeah, social entrepreneurs from this pretty radical school called the Chaos Pilots um, that were <laughs> in Vancouver Pilots. doing, like, helping one of the banks go carbon neutral, um, and they're from Denmark in Vancouver, and I, like, decided right then and there I was going to that school. Um, <laughs> so, was the college called <laughs> chaos, chaos pilots? Pilot. Like the whole point is you're able to navigate chaos. Like their yeah. their kind of motto is build a plane while flying it, which is, you know, I I frankly think it has done me well for That's Five Tran because when you build a fast growing company, you have to be able to handle that chaos. Yeah, well, that, that is literally what you're doing. So. I can't believe that's the name. That's a classic <laughs> name. And you go in and you study things like entrepreneurship and, and basically, what, read loads of cases and talk about cases, how well, you, people have built things. on. You get hands-on. So you'll get a lot of workshops, like you can imagine a con- consultant going into a company. You do a ton of workshops to study something. Then it's applied. So you'll do a project for a company or an organization somewhere in the world where you'll test everything that you've learned out. 
and then you come back and you have to present that like you do a yeah a presentation written and uh, oral and then you get your your marks based on that but it's it's very applied and it's yeah very out there in the world that's very interesting and it sent you over to Norway for a uh, year or? it was three, years. three I years I did the first year in Holland and the second two out of Aarhus which is a small town or second biggest city in Denmark nobody knows about it that's amazing yeah so at that point uh, what was the thought what was the plan basically at that point like I was I was pretty darn idealistic and I didn't really know what I wanted to do but I wanted to build something big I wanted to do some sort of social enterprise um, I actually one of the projects I did which was at the Copenhagen climate conference which was supposed to be the next Kyoto protocol and like really set us up for success it was the largest gathering of world leaders in the history of the planet um, nice. and yeah it was so I, I was involved with that and the dynamics were super interesting um, because you had all of these world leaders that had their own interests at stake and yet all needed to come together to solve the problem so it failed I think it actually failed because China didn't send their leader just sent some sort of delegate kind of kiboshed the thing but the ironic thing is what they did is they kiboshed it so there wasn't any plan. Then they went home, they invested in green tech. So they had like all the factories to produce all the solar panels, went full throttle on that. And so now when people come back and you have like the Paris Accord and agree with it, suddenly China's got all the manufacturing. They just need the Chinese tech. Unbelievable. Like, you know, I wouldn't, it's like, I don't theory. know. It's a theory. It's a theory. Yeah. But then from that, I designed a board game that, like, <laughs> represented those dynamics and then, like, almost got a publishing deal for it. And that was sort of my first entrepreneurial endeavor. I spent, you know, the first six months after on, college doing that. How do you go from the climate accord to a board game? What was the leap there? What filled in that leap? Um, well, I love playing board. Like, I would play Risk all the time growing up. And like the game dynamics of usually there's multiplayer games where everybody's trying to like there's games where everybody's trying to solve one problem or you're trying to beat everybody and I was trying to create a mixture where everybody had to work together to solve this problem of the planet and yet still keep their own interests at heart this exact scenario you saw play out in Copenhagen, in Copenhagen. Yeah, yeah. so I tried to represent that in a game which was a challenge. So you lo you're a guy, normal guy, loves board games, much as the next guy, maybe a bit more, and then you go to Copenhagen, you see this fascinating dynamic, and you say, I'm going to combine this experience with that interest. Mm -hmm. So you build this board game, okay. So you build a board game. What do you need to do to build a board game? Well, you spend a lot of money on, like, cardboard and dice. <laughs> really? <laughs> and just different, giving it a crack? Just, yeah, giving it a track. You do a lot of prototyping sessions. It's honestly kind of hard. Like, there's math behind it. There's dynamics behind it. And the truth of the matter is, like, if the game dynamics are good, it'll be fun. If they're not, it won't be so fun. Um, and there is math and probabilities. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 like it's psychology, you can see that. And, yeah, game theory, psychology, all these different things. Yeah. There's a lot of layers there. There's a lot of layers there. Yeah. Because on the top layer, it needs to be something fun and interesting, like something, uh, I don't know, say Harry Potter themes, something like that, whatever. Right. But then underneath that, then you need to have it balanced out for a certain optimal number of players. Underneath that, the probability of each player winning. Underneath that, the probability mm -hmm. of, of each player staying in the game long enough to be stimulated and make it sellable to a group. Like, there's loads of And layers. to be honest, that's where I failed. Like, 
Right. I failed to get the game dynamics really good. Yeah. So I was really good at selling it, um, funny enough. So I got um, like an internship at Wolf Olin's, which was this huge branding company in London. They did like the London Olympics where they, you know, did all sorts of graphics for the game. Wait, this was from a pitch competition? Yeah. Or something there, like that. So the, I won that pitch competition. Yeah. Then I went into another pitch competition for 20,000 euros for this challenge future competition. Um, at they, you, they needed like a fun thing that would help improve the world. So this fit really well. Yeah. And they had all these rounds. They put you through a ton of rounds in terms of applying. And I got through all of the rounds until the second last round, and I they rated you from one to 100, and I was eight points ahead of anybody else. There was five people through that round. And then they flew everybody to Slovenia. I did like a TEDx talk about the game. I remember that. Yeah. And then I lost the, the competition. And um, I also had a publishing deal. Like I had gone to a these big like toy fairs in Germany. I'd met this Swedish company. They were going to publish the game. They'd like verbally they didn't sign anything yet but verbally agreeing to it we're going back in paperwork and then their sales i guess weren't so good for a quarter and they're like sorry we're not going to take a risk on an environmental game so i lost that i lost the um i didn't get the money from yeah. the competition and uh, i would say that was like my first big smack right because you obviously don't need to talk about the figure but when you're when you're doing these things does that amount of money keep you going for like a year just to run the company type of thing or is it that they'll give you a salary like 20, back work? then twenty thousand euros seems so, like yeah, a lot of money grand. yeah so that is that's a chunk of cash yeah you probably would have put into the game rather than yourself and yeah i yeah, would yeah, live right. lived at home yeah and, yeah uh, yeah Mad, really cool. So you did you didn't get that in the end you smacked your 23 maybe 22 23 Somewhere in there, yeah. yeah. What's the what's the go-to then? Because you kind of love games, but it, it just hits yeah, you Yeah, well, I had no money, and I had to get a job. Um, so I got a job. I <laughs> It was actually my first, yeah, kind of intro into sales, sort of. Um, there was a game company in Victoria, the one, like, one of the only Canadian companies that published games. So I'm like, I'm going to get a j job for this game company, and then they'll publish my game right yeah. so I call this guy up and I just like pitch him in two minutes um, on why he should hire me there's no job publish nothing and so he says okay come in so I come in and I like tell him all about myself I have my game there I have all sorts of things that I've done um, I pitch it and then I keep calling him back I'm fairly persistent in calling him back and finally he picks up and he's like would you like to be a publicist I had no idea what a publicist was like I didn't even know what the word was so I'm like can you tell me a little more about what you mean exactly? Like, what would the job entail? And so he spelled it out, and basically you're getting media attention for games. And so that was my my first job. Mad, okay. Yeah. So you, what did you do? You flew back to Canada, you moved home. Yeah, at that point I was already home because I had no more oh, money. Oh, you already and, home, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, and then I started working for the company as a publicist, which is kind of like sales. Like, you have to get media companies like radio stations, television, magazines – to write about so or talk PR about, essentially. yeah, for free. Yeah. Well, right, okay. Yeah. So it is sales. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is worth writing about without actually us needing to pay you. Gosh. Yeah. And how did it go? It went well. It was kind of mixed. Like all their sales was around Christmas, and the first time I tried to get media attention, I didn't. Like I went right to the people that were gonna that charge you money. We paid them like three k to run these ads, or, or like play our games on the radio. It didn't have that high of an ROI. 
And then I talked to the founder, the you know, who was my boss and who ran the company, and he said, like, you just have to be persistent as hell. You have to call, 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 call. So I called every radio station in Canada a million times. I learned how to navigate around um, the people that want to sell you stuff to the people that just want content. And we got the games played on every radio station in Canada, which was a pretty good success. But I don't know how much... It was hard to quantify how much sales were, were related to it. Right. Then I hired two interns who were studying video editing to make videos in the off season about the games the videos were complete crap and so i basically had to teach myself how to make videos so i studied lynda.com which is now linkedin learning did like 30 video courses taught myself everything remade all the videos so that i could kind of save my job and then at that point i didn't feel like i was going anywhere so i quit to make videos for people no way (laughs) In Canada again. In Canada. So you, you you quit your salary and just went freelancing. Yeah, which was tough. But I lucked out because I had this friend and she had this like unreal apartment straight downtown with a Murphy bed and she let me stay there for like no money. Well, not some money, like she she owned it, so I was paying for half of like the strata fee. And right. uh Hang on, what's a Murphy bed? A Murphy bed's like a like it goes up against the oh, wall and then comes right, down. Right. So I was in the living room on this Murphy bed for, it was great. Like it was nice living there, and and I wasn't I was making enough money to get by to like buy more equipment, but it was it was a stretch. Like it wasn't. Yeah. So like you're kind of jumping between things here, which most people do. At any of these points, was it like your ultimate long term dream to be the video or the board game guy or the video guy or you know, whatever's coming next. At any point did you say, I'm absolutely going to commit to this? Or was it always kind of just, well, let's give this a try and see where it goes? And I say that question, or I ask that question uh, with kind of no judgment in mind. Like n- neither one of those is better than the other. Yeah. Than well, it's, it's an interesting thing, this psychology of committing to something, right? Yeah. Like they have a lot of things saying the most successful people have grit, right? They mm. just keep going with something. At the same time, like what what does that really mean keep going like does it also mean cutting your losses and carrying on with something yeah, else exactly. so i actually had this experience in high school where i went to a school and i stuck it out for the entire year because i felt like you had to do that it was an awful experience really hated it mm. and so i think i took that kind of experience of just bearing with it for a long time and applied it to stuff so i would stick it out for a decent amount of time but not forever and I, I I really just wanted to build something and grow build and grow yeah it didn't matter to me what industry it was in or, or much more than that. yeah so at this point it's probably when you went over to San Fran then right so I was in San Francisco think why did you go to San Fran just thinking that's where I wanted was. to go I felt like I was in this smaller town and I'm like you know young like you know kind of want to go see the world make yeah. your fortune type thing and I have dual citizenship, so I could go there fairly easily. And uh, I was thinking either New York or San Francisco. Um, and I actually, one of my professors from this school in Denmark ended up becoming the CEO for this 3D printing startup. Uh, yeah. And so he was like, hey, you should come down and do some video. So they were one of my first clients. I drove down in this like really old car from my granny that I'd inherited. And uh, I remember, like, I. I remember driving over the Bay Bridge being like, all right, you know, this is where we're going to make it happen. 
Um, and uh, yeah, coming into San Francisco and just working really hard. So you do videos for that guy, then he takes you on to then actually sell Then he takes sell me on as printers. a... Yeah, well he takes me on... They had a marketing person that left, so he was like, videos fit with marketing, now I can hire you. I think he just wanted to hire me. Right. Um, and so I came on to... I did... Pro, like, when I came on, they had all these orders for printers, but they didn't know how to build them fast enough. So I basically just went in and started building printers, because they needed printers getting built. And then I timed all of the functions and organized everything that needed to be done to build a printer and then laid out this plan that's like these are all the actions that needs to take place if you actually want to be able to reach our production goals we need to hire this many people and do it in this way um, and there was another guy that i worked with really heavily on that who came in at the same time um yeah so it was mad but did they pay you a salary or was that uh, the well they paid me uh 16 dollars an hour which in San Francisco, is, get you right no, there. no, yeah. I went 10k into debt my first year. That's mad. And um, it was all commission based. Well, though. later when I moved into sales, I had, yeah, zero salary and pure commission. Like the deal was that if, if my commission didn't exceed minimum wage, they still had to pay me minimum wage right, from okay. a legal standpoint. But, but it was a pure commission sales job. What age were you here? 26, 27? I. Uh, yeah. So uh, at the age of 27, like a lot of people listening to this now will be like mid-20s and they'll be just finishing an accounting exams and be qualified accountants and they'll think they're screwed and they don't know what to do and all this sort of stuff. Like you were not in a, in a very enviable position at 27. Not you were at having all. some great experiences. Right. And the story now is amazing. Thank God it's turned into a good one. But like... I was making no money. Well, once I got into sales, I still wasn't making great money, but I was making like... 65k or something yeah, which would like i could yeah do you think yeah that's nuts so you're in the printing company and that was that was the direct precursor to five charm right so yeah. it was around that time what you were just kind of got itchy feet and oh no the printing company folded if i remember well the, no so i was at the printing company for like two and a bit years i think right and then um a friend of mine in san francisco who is also canadian uh, he had his own startup. That startup went under, um, or he kind of turned it, went down. He joined what is now Fivetran, and then he took me for lunch one day because we had gone on this kayak trip, like almost halfway to a halfway from Vancouver to Alaska, like in the middle of nowhere in these islands. Um, didn't see a boat for two days, so we were out there kayaking for a week in the summer. I told him about my job and how I was doing all this sales on zero base, pure commission. And doing seventy to eighty percent of the sales, seventy to one hundred percent of the sales to my startup, and then he thought that could be useful for their startup. So he took me for lunch in San Francisco. I thought it was to make more videos. The two founders, George and Taylor, were there at the lunch, and then I figured out halfway through lunch this is a, they were trying to hire me. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. And off you went with Fivetran then, you're employee number seven, and like we even just talking about it earlier, the early days you were just kind of in the booth, like making calls, trying to get everything done, dealing with all the inbound. Yeah, uh, there was a ton of inbound. To yeah. be fair, George and Taylor had come across a hot product with a, a really good product market fit. And so the, the inbound was there. People wanted it. And you just had to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, I think the year prior was like they definitely had product market fit and people were coming in and people wanted it. But it was also their investment had just like just about run out just before they started to make sales. Like, right. Okay. Um, and so then... Uh, 
yeah, it was a bit hit or miss. So it wasn't ultra secure. I, I think when I came in, it was just getting the place where it's kind of getting secure, but it wasn't like a hot tech yeah, company okay. that people knew about that was necessarily going to go somewhere. Right, okay. So it still did feel like a risk at that point. Well, not compared to the 3D printing company I was at. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny. God, it really is hard to imagine those kind of date because it's now you know it's still done really well and there's mm. only 300 people working there and all Andreessen Horowitz money and all this sort of stuff but it's hard to imagine that, that a day not so long ago like five years ago or yeah something like that where it was they were trying to make it work they were really just trying to figure it out and uh, you were there in a very unglamorous way it just locked in the phone booth slamming the phone getting these deals over the line and that sort of thing yeah, like it was definitely better, you know, they had three years or four years before that of like just building a product yeah. of Taylor, you know, in a boiler room basically trying to make calls to get the, like even the initial conversations to figure out what people wanted. So by the time I showed up, like they had customers, there was a product market fit, but it was still um, like a very small band of people yeah and uh yeah and very much being figured out so fast forwarding then all's gone well with five tran and then uh your girlfriend at the time mercedes now your wife joins then um you do decide you need to go back to europe and it's kind of like okay well guys george and taylor i need to go back to europe like one way or the other and they say well you're too good to lose let's keep you on board kind of um so we were t i was together with mercedes for quite a long time before five tran then she almost lost her visa and was going to have to go back. So they br brought her on for two weeks to volunteer while she could look for another job so she wouldn't lose her visa status. And then two weeks later, Taylor was like, I have to hire her. Please let me hire her. So that's how she came on board. And about three months after I started, I told Taylor that my end mission was to go to Europe to start right, that up. Okay. Um, but he was kind of, you know, most companies when they're 30 people don't start up in EMEA. And what happened is we applied for an H-1B visa for Mercedes, but it was just after the Trump administration came in. So they cracked down on administration and her visa was denied. And so when I heard her visa was denied, I was like secretly excited yeah. because it was a forcing function. God. And uh, that's what we used to come over here. And then you come over to Ireland in what, uh, March 17, March 18? N no, no, it would have been, it was February 18. Yeah, February 18, okay. The, yeah. the two of you in a tiny little room, hire four people, hire two more people or whatever it is, get to seven basically by, no, get to 12 by the end of the year. By the by end, the end, end of, of the year. Eight, uh, uh, by the end of uh, 2018. And now, what's what are the numbers like now? Because Christmas 2018 was 12, Christmas 2019? We... 30 people that have started and 40 people hired. 33 that have started, 40 people hired, and another 10 racks open. It's unbelievable. Like, it's it's like it's insane. It's multiplied 25 times in two years. Um, and that's a reflection of, obviously, the, the success of the sales team and all the other teams it's playing a It's a reflection role. of your success, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, <laughs> there's a lot more than me involved. But it's successful your management and, and how you've kind of run that whole thing. That evolution from being... Uh, an individual contributor, salesperson, and you know, albeit the top salesperson in the company at the time, to now running a team of first, whatever, one, two, three, four, seven, twelve, thirteen, twenty, soon to be forty odd. What's that evolution like? How did your psychology evolve, or your self perception evolve, or your approach towards work, etc., uh, evolve over that course? 
Yeah. Um, like, I think I'm – I don't know that I was actually the top salesperson when I left. Like, right, there, okay. we had other people, and I think we were hitting at a similar rate. Um, but I think I'm a better manager than I was a salesperson. Interesting. Um, yeah, and, and you kind of have to – but the thing is that because we're growing so much and now being, like, a manager of managers and a manager of managers of managers of people um, – <laughs> You're it, like you have to constantly expand your psychology and like the way you look at things and what you prioritize and a lot of it is just about how can your actions have the most leverage and the most value. Um, so you know, just teaching people to fish, right? Mm -hmm. You you can't be stuck doing things as a blocker for other people. Like the main philosophy is just spend a lot of time hiring really really good people spent a lot of time enabling some of them so that they're really successful and then to a large part get out of their way mm. with a little bit of structure so that they can go out and, and do incredibly well and they can, and and really get behind their ability to grow and expand like if they come to you and say oh I have an idea your initial reaction shouldn't be oh that's a hassle that's complicated I don't want to think about it which can happen to managers when you have so much going on it should be you know you want to harness that energy. So if it's a good idea straight up, then you give it a go. But even if it, there's something off with it, then you just give them like a little bit of encouraging coaching and, and modify it slightly, give it a little bit of a nudge and then keep keep, keep them going. Yeah. Is there a, a, a credo or a philosophy of management that you kind of stick to? I guess like hire well, get out of the way is in itself um, a credo. Is there anything else that you would stick to as a principle or a rule yeah, I think like you need different types of people when you start. So you need really entrepreneurial people when you begin. And then you need people that can follow more structure when you've expanded more. The Jedis and the The Jedis and the Stormtroopers, yeah. So Jedi are really entrepreneurial people that can go into any situation, figure it out. Um, Stormtroopers, they can follow a process and execute that at a very high level. Um, the problem with Jedi is if you let them on their own too much, they start going in all sorts of different directions and they rebel. Um, so you really need to make them feel part of the whole and to leverage them, help them define what success looks like and, and so that you can keep them as valuable parts of the company as you grow. And then I think the other thing is just you want everybody to be growing. Like people leave a company for two reasons, right? They don't like their boss or they're not growing. Mm. And so... Like another philosophy is looking at challenge of the task and ability of the of the employee. You always want their ability to be increasing and with it the challenge of what they're doing because if their ability, you know, if the challenge is too great for their ability, they'll be frustrated and disappointed with themselves. And if the challenge is too little for their ability, they'll get bored and, and frustrated again. And so keeping that line of increasing ability and increasing challenge with everybody in your company creates this incredible sense of momentum, of purpose, of contagious enthusiasm, of drive, and it that really helps propel the kind of growth that we're going through. Yeah, and the, as you say, that idea of flow, like that line of, of optimal challenge versus ability or challenge divided by ability, yeah. uh, where they feel like they're able to do it, but it's not easy to do. Right. Uh, that flow state that uh, that well, you you think Czech I think Russian the the author of that book he probably yeah. is Czech, um, 
it's a really worthwhile book for people to read actually the, it, it, I think it's just called flow or the flow state yeah. and yeah. it's an interesting one for people to find that optimal thing because I'm not, you and I laugh about this uh, a few times we trick us we feel tricked I think into having a purpose because data pipelines aren't saving the world and they're not uh, they're not something we dreamed about as kids but you would be doing well to walk into an office somewhere and find more engaged people than you would find in five trans office like everybody absolutely loves what they're doing which is kind of bizarre if you think about it it's data pipelines <laughs> like nobody dreamed of selling yeah. or working on data pipelines as a kid and so it is maybe a combination of that flow state right. that you and them and upper management have managed to create for people what other factors do you think is there there's definitely a good community and, and sort of culture and uh, a lot of laughs there it feels great to be on a winning team mm -hmm. so to have a hot product that is selling and everybody's doing well and uh, it, it feels incredible to be part of that for sure i wonder what maybe there's the feeling that there's opportunity to move up because it's still small still being figured out uh, yeah. that was a driver for me if there's 50,000 people above you in the organization the idea of making large impact or moving up quickly uh, seems a bit more kind of far-fetched than than when it's just three people between you and the person who started the whole thing uh, and I think there's something about working as a team incredibly effectively yeah like when everybody is really supporting each other everybody you can see everybody's growth and you know how hard they fought to achieve that growth and you see them be successful and you're supporting them and you're getting in the trenches and you're fighting these battles and you're winning together and you have that collective sense of purpose like one of the core tenants I have when people come in is that I tell them your success is more determined by the success of the entire group than by your own success because if we don't grow and succeed as an operation there's not going to be opportunities for you to move into management to yeah. move into other things and if you're all self-interested we're not going to put you in those positions mm. but if we all work together then that growth is going to be huge for you and so um like the most beneficial the by far the most rewarding thing in in my job is just seeing how successful everybody is and seeing how they grow and they accomplish more and more and more challenges and uh yeah yeah i, I think you told me that when i joined because that was a new idea a new concept for me so if you join a small company uh and you're interested in self-service and getting mm. as much out of it for yourself as you can the uh, salary and the bonuses will serve you and the stocks if you're lucky enough to get a piece of stock that will serve you if the company as well but the thing that serves you above all in the long run is the story that you're a part of. Mm -hmm. And so if you come along and say, I made loads of money out of Fivetran or out of any company before it went down the swanee because of selfish individuals, uh, that, doesn't, that won't serve you in your next interview or in, in your path to the top, as will the, the following. I did well in a company that did even better. I, I, I was a part of a really successful story and I know how to ride a successful wave and contribute to that. Yeah. That story serves people a lot better in the long run uh, than the idea of I did really well for a couple of years before the whole thing tanked because of other people. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when people listening to this who are in uh, their 20s, that famous saying, I'm always going on about it. Yeah, your 20s are for learning and your 30s are for earning. Build up a uh, brain, a skill set, a CV, a story that will get you paid in your 30s much right. more than you'd ever make in your 20s. Yeah. That ties in with that perfectly. Be a part of a great story in your 20s if you can. Yeah. And then cash in on that in your 30s rather than looking for the cash 
uh, and being greedy about it or, or self-serving in a, in a company that doesn't need that. Think about the story above all else. Think about, the st- yeah. 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 It, it's a funny and kind of unique thing. Um, so this is, this, this podcast is for people who are either in college, maybe mm-hmm. about to even be in college and are really forward thinking, uh, students and uh, graduates and people in their 20s kind of figuring it out. Yeah. So they learn about these different jobs and y- you know the, the mission. Right. What advice would you have to people in that age group based on the journey you've taken? Like, um, just so people kind of appreciate it, there's, you can read about Fivetran and, and Andreessen, um, Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm. Like it, it's a pretty unique uh, story. There, there are other companies out there for sure who have, have been this successful and more successful, but there aren't many every year. It's a really cool thing to be a part of. And Nade is now running the whole thing for EMEA. So going from selling printers mm-hmm. with no fixed salary to doing this in the space of four years and all the growth that, uh, that you've had in the meantime, based on that experience, what would you be saying to these guys to either worry about, not worry about, focused on, not focused on? Yeah, I think, um, like, I was, I probably held myself back a lot. Like, we think that people who get into really good positions have something special about them. They've always been special. And sure, like, certain, different people have different talents and everything like that. But, like, really put, put yourself out there. Um, you know, I, I did a presentation at this Wolf Olin's consultancy in London and the director saw the presentation and was like, that guy should apply. I never applied because I didn't have the guts really to think that I could get a job in a branding agency in London. I don't know why, but I think the amount of times we, you know, this is kind of cliche, but like you, fear gets in your way. I don't know, like mm. fear is what stops you is, is big. The other thing is just expand your understanding of reality. You know, I grew up in this kind of hippie school on Vancouver Island, I didn't have any idea of what was really possible in the business world. And so meeting other people, getting out to other places, this fits with your learning in your 20s, Yeah. Um, to really expand your reality, your understanding of what exists so that you can go for it. Um, and yeah, like it could be worth if you want to ride ride a wave like this, like hopping in crunch base, looking at companies that are growing fast and really pushing to get into them. Yeah. Um, and like a very sort of technical bit of feedback is that the easiest position to get into a sales comp like a sales job in a company, um, which is a job that you don't necessarily need any specific training for, is a business development rep. Yeah. And the best way to get a business development rep job is to hunt the company, call the company, do go on LinkedIn, be as persistent with the company as they would want you to be with other companies. Um, yeah, you you show them that you're already in that mindset. Of a so show them that you like people. People think like, oh, I've got to be um, really careful, and the person might be busy, and I'll just you know when they're interviewing, when they know that the expectations when they get the job is to be a hustler, mm. and they're never going to get the job because they don't put that hustle in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, we kind of talk about that all the time. I couldn't agree more, and that's uh, that's something we've seen with certain applicants who are really just pushing hard, and that's like, yeah, get them pushing that hard wearing our jersey. That's what yeah. people people want. And fail you know? fast. Like failure is okay too. Don't think failure is not okay. Yeah. Um, fail hard, fail fast. It it could hurt, but you're gonna get yourself into more opportunities more quickly I yeah think. another yeah. thing from your story is that you were by no means on a rocket ship 
up until you were 27 or 28. But all of those mixed experiences that you had had, the failures, the tryings, the putting yourself like, basically you hung out in your, or outside your comfort zone between 20 and, and 26. Mm-hmm. And all you learned in that made you really good once you went into this, uh, this company at 27, 28. Right. And were put in an uncomfortable position of having to just like really churn and get the deals in. Uh, you became, I guess, for want of a better term, a chaos pilot, someone who could navigate <laughs> uh, a chaotic environment and, and thrive in it because you had put yourself through that in yeah. your early 20s, which is a pretty cool thing. Um, so before we wrap up, a couple of quick fires for you. Is there a quote that you live by? Well, attitude is everything. Nice. Is there a book that you would recommend these guys read? A book that I would recommend? I know you read a lot. I do read a fair number of books. Um... Three Cups of Tea is a good book. You recommended that to me. I yeah. love that book. Yeah, yeah. It's also called A Cup of Friendship. There's the, the, the oh, sorry, Three Cups of Tea is a different one. Yeah, Three Cups of Tea is that's the mountain, the guy in Afghanistan building schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a really cool book. Um, the Cup of Friendship is one that I told you I read, and then you recommended Three Cups of Tea. And uh, lastly, is there someone these guys can Google that they would get a lot from if they were watching videos of the person or uh, reading about them or anything like that? I watched about every single TED Talk for like two years. Really? Yeah. Um, and you were a huge ad- Like, I've never met a bigger advocate of LinkedIn learning. Yeah. Um, there's, like, this is a random thing, but there's this, it's called Greening the Ghetto. It's this um, African-American woman in the Bronx who created this whole company um, putting green roofs and gardens and parks in New York. I don't know, for some reason, that was one of the most inspirational videos I watched. Um, just because it kind of gave me the motivation of, you know what, like, just put your back into it. Just go for it. Like, it wasn't the hugest project. It wasn't the hugest thing. But it worked, and it was successful, and it and uh, it was just like a genuine person putting their heart into it. So, yeah, maybe Google Greening the Ghetto and watch the TED Talk. Nice. Okie doke. Well, that's it. Nate Spawn, thank you very much. Much thank appreciated. You. Guys, if you do want to work in Fivetran, uh, please drop me an email on mrgradlife at gmail.com uh, and we'll see if there's a good role in there for you. And as always, if you're interested in chatting about your career, same email address, hit me up and we can have a chat. See you next week.